Well, good morning. We're in our fourth message in the Servant King series, and we're in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 25, where we're going to talk about the power of parables. I did a series not long ago on the parables in the Gospel of Luke, but the parable we're going to look at today is the, I think, strategic parable of all the parables, because all of them build out of this one and how we hear and receive the word. If you've got the note sheet that's available on our app, you'll see a quote from T.W. Manson who said, the parable shows us what kind of God we must believe in and what kind of persons we must be. So things are changing. We've been in each of the first three chapters in Mark in the previous messages and things are changing, the crowd's growing, but the skeptics really are raising the bar and they don't want Jesus in the synagogue. They don't want him around. So Jesus changes his strategy in Mark chapter four and he goes more to open air preaching out in the open. Ivor Powell, who's an author of another time, said a boat became his pulpit, the realm of nature, his cathedral and the blue sky, the roof of a God-made auditorium. So what's the purpose of parables? Verse 1, he began to teach again by the sea. And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching He uses parables. He's talking about the kingdom. So he's using these parables to teach them. I like what one commentator says. The parables were his weapons of warfare. In other words, they would be revealed to those who were longing for truth, but the meaning would be hidden from those who were not seeking truth. They were his weapons of warfare. They were his instruction by illustration. So Mark chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 13 are two extensive teaching sections, I mean Mark 13, excuse me, are two extensive teaching sections in Mark's gospel. These are kingdom parables. This parable could have come immediately after Mark chapter 3. Jesus has gotten in the boat to avoid the press of the crowd And if you've ever been to Israel and you go to that northern end where Capernaum is and you circle around toward Magdala and Tiberias and you could see where Jesus could get in a boat and it would be almost a natural amphitheater. So his voice would carry off the water. It would be like a rising up of the banks. The crowds would be gathered there. He would push out a little bit and it was the natural sound of an amphitheater. So his voice would carry. Now, he sat down in the boat. Some people would say, well, he sat down because if you stand up in a boat, you can fall out. But the reason here is is appropriate. Rabbis sat to teach, but they stood to preach. And so Jesus is going to teach them in a parable. He's talking to the disciples. He's talking to the curious. He's talking to the people that just want him to continue healing. He's talking to the scribes and Pharisees who are trying to destroy him, who have already missed their opportunity to give their hearts to him. He's 
preaching in parables. The parable hides the truth, but it also reveals the truth. Now, on the notes, you will see that there are three characteristics of a parable. Let me just give them to you real quickly in case you don't have the note sheet. It's a picture that gets our attention. It's a mirror where we see ourselves, and it's a window through which we see truth. So a parable is a picture, a mirror, and a window. A picture gets our attention. As a mirror, we see ourselves, and as a window, we see truth. The key term here is to hear. In Matthew 13, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. He says it over and over again. This is the first word of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, or Israel, you should listen. This was the confession repeated by the Jews every day of their lives. Hear, O Israel, verse 3, listen to this, hear. It implies, here's what Jesus is implying, if you think about who he is. He's the I am. What Jesus is saying here is you need to listen to me now like the people of Israel needed to listen to me then. I am the continuation of the voice saying, listen to God, for I am God among you. Jesus has sown into the lives of these people, and they are the soil on which the seed of his word is being thrown. The hearers have to respond. Now, this is a very familiar parable, the sower, the seed, and the soil. It's a warning parable that we not only hear, but that we heed what God says to us. He says, listen to this, hear this. As we get older, we lose our hearing. Terry and I can't hear each other half the time, and we refuse to wear hearing aids, but I know why my hearing is bad, because when I'm in a car by myself, my music is really loud. Now, I'm not the guy in the car four behind you that you can hear his music, but I am the guy in the car that it's loud enough for me that I can sing along with it and don't have to hear myself singing. So that's probably why I've lost my hearing some. Jesus, in this chapter, is speaking loud and clear. The crowds are pressing in. They don't want to hear the word. They want to be healed. They they want a miracle a day to keep the devil away. I mean, they, they just want the excitement. But he wants to talk to them. And, and we don't have to question what these parables are about. So when you look at Mark chapter 4, the parable of the sower tells us how the kingdom comes into our lives. When I see the parable of the sower, this is how the kingdom, this is how the word this is how God speaks into my life. The parable of the seed shows us how the kingdom grows. And the parable of the mustard seed shows us how the gospel of the kingdom will ultimately impact the world. 
So it's how it comes into our lives, how it grows, and how the gospel impacts our lives. The second point is, is the parable itself of the sower, the seed, and the soil. You see, when you see a parable, you ought to write this word by every parable that you see in the Gospels. Do it in all caps. Think. Because the parable is meant to make us think, to hear and to think. Jesus is preaching in the open. He's using parables. A story could be seen around him. Just picture this. Jesus is in a boat. The crowd is here. And he looks off over to the side and, and he sees a sower sowing seed. And so he just points in that direction. Just use your sanctified imagination. They're looking at him, but he sees a sower, a farmer, sowing seed. And he says, it's like a sower sowing seed. And everybody looks over there. And so now they're beginning to learn, I need to connect the dots between what that farmer is doing with seed and the soil and what God is saying to my heart. You see, this first parable is the key to interpreting all the parables. These words matter if you want to understand the parables. Look at what he says in verse 3. Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Now, if you would mark down by verse 4, chapter 4 and verse, verse 15, that's the application of verses 3 and 4. The seed is never received. Satan snatches it away. And when he explains the parable to his disciples, the application of these two verses is in verse 15, beside the road, in the traffic pattern, or in the ruts where the farmer would walk and cast the seed. Some of it would fall where people walked, and the ground was hard like concrete, and so the seed couldn't take root. Jesus is talking about people that are too busy or too hard-hearted to listen to what God has to say to them. The word is sown. It's sown into your life. It's sown into my life through preaching, through teaching, through studying, through memorizing, uh, through witnessing. It, it's, the Word is dropped into our hearts. And how we respond to that determines what the Word does. So here's a couple of points. First of all, when seeds are sown, the Spirit is working. That's an important point because no seed of the Word of God is sown in a vacuum. The Spirit of God, He's the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of God bears witness to the truth of God. So when seeds are sown, the Spirit is working. Secondly, there is an opportunity and possibility of change every time the seed of the Word of God is sown. Every time you open your Bible, every time you listen to a sermon, you do a Bible study, every time you read a chapter of Scripture, there's a possibility of change that God is going to turn a light on in your mind, and you're going to go, wow, I 
can't believe that. That is incredible. And you're going to mark it, and you're going to highlight it, and you're going to tell somebody about it because it changed you in that moment. Then he goes to verse 5. He talks about other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. The application of verses 5 and 6 is found in verses 16 and 17. That's where he explains the parable, verses 16 and 17. What does he mean? Verses 16 and 17. He says there's no depth. The response is shallow or emotional or soulish. These people aren't going to stick with it long. They receive it. It falls into rocky ground, but there's not much soil, and so something springs up. Yeah, that's great. Let's go do that. But it doesn't last. Here's the problem. There's a lot of promise, and there's a lot of potential, but these rocks have to be moved. These obstacles that keep it from taking deep root have to be dealt with. You can't ignore it. A farmer cannot ignore rocks and rubbish in the soil if he wants a good crop. And people, the people who don't have much soil, if you will, their epitaph reads something like this. What could have been? Or if only... I mean, they've received the word. Something sprouted up inside of them. But after the sun has risen, it scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. Now, let me just give you a little application here. And I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. And I don't need an email or a text message. This kind of immediate response is what's wrong with American Christianity today. We chase the latest fad, the latest thing, the latest author. And we pursue God just like we pursue other things. In fact, it's hard to tell which one we're pursuing the most. You know, when Terry and I first got married, everybody everybody tried to get her to host a Tupperware party. I mean, like, you, you obviously don't care about providing for food for your family and and storing up leftovers if you don't come to a Tupperware party and buy something. Or Mary Kay. In fact, we got so pressured, she bought a Mary Kay kit, never had a meeting. We just threw that money away because she wasn't passionate about it. But there was that pressure. Oh, everybody needs to do this. Amway. I mean, everybody was selling Amway. Now you think about it, whether it's organic foods or or it's essential oils, or if it's whatever the latest diet fad is. And, and, you know, there are people that they're on their 37th diet, and they still gain weight. You know why? Because they get passionate for a moment, and if it doesn't work immediately or work every time, they begin to lose interest. The problem is they treat Jesus that way. Let's just apply it to Sherwood. 
People that come to refresh, and I mean, we pack the floor for refresh in September. People are here. They turn in prayer requests. And for about two or three weeks after refresh, man, attendance is up. People are hot. I mean, they're excited about the Lord. And, and then it's Georgia homecoming or Auburn homecoming or Alabama homecoming or Florida State homecoming or Florida homecoming. And all of a sudden, we gone. Why? Because football means as much to, much to them as their faith does. Because there's no consistency. There's no life force. And so when the sun comes up, the ground of your heart can't feed your flesh and the Spirit of God. Something's got to give. And what happens is the flesh takes over and the Spirit of God and the Word of God is withered up in our hearts. And before you know it, it's okay if God's not speaking to us. We're on to the next thing. Football season's over, basketball season started. Duck season's over, deer season's going. I mean, we're always finding something, some fad or some interest or some hobby that it's hard to tell what people are really most interested in. You know, you see people and they post pictures, you know, I mean, we've got them. We've taken a gazillion pictures uh, at Disney World and on vacations in the mountains and things like that. But, I mean, you just, just watch it. Listen, we reveal our hearts. I'm sorry, I hate to be the one to tell you that, but we reveal our hearts. When our posts are always about things we enjoy and we never post anything from the Word of God or we never post a quote out of a spiritual book that we are reading, somebody, especially a lost person, ought to ask the question, does your faith really mean anything to you? Or is it just convenient or in a crisis? Or is it your life? Immediately. It says immediately. Satan doesn't waste any time. I mean, he goes when the seed, and he says, uh-oh, taking root. If you want to read a book about this, read the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. How do we keep that believer from growing in his faith? Read the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. It happens every time. It happens every time I preach. It happens every time a service is over. Every time a service is over. I mean, people walk out, they don't talk about what God just did in the service. They don't talk about the song we just sang. They don't talk about the people that were just saved. They look at each other and say, where are we going for lunch? I mean, already, word's gone. Not even any time to meditate and chew on it. No conversation in the car going home. What did God teach you today? What did God say to you today? What did, what did God speak into your heart today to let it take a little more root? Because I want to tell you, immediately is when you get up out of your seat and leave a worship service. The devil, if he hasn't already started, is trying to steal the seed and get you to think about other things. Other seed, verse 7, fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it and yielded no crop. The application here is verses 18 and 19. This is a cluttered heart. This is not a shallow heart. There's enough soil for the Word of God to take root, but other things and other concerns are choking out the Word. Now, this is different than the shallow soil, the rocky soil, 
This is thorns coming up and choking it out. So what is it that chokes out the, the word? Well, Jesus tells us. Worry and concern. Worry and concern. I mean, anxiety, worry, fear, it dominates our culture. People are afraid of everything and anything. They worry about everything and anything. They worry about things they can't change and worry about things most of the things we worry about never happen. But we spend our energy worrying about them. The deceitfulness of riches. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. The deceitfulness of riches. Oh, if I just had more money, if I had more of this, if I could buy this, if I buy that. In fact, if I don't tithe, I can have more to spend, which shows a lack of faith. The deceitfulness of riches makes you think if you had a little more, you'd be happy. You won't. They asked John D. Rockefeller, who at the time was one of the richest men in the world, how much money do you have to have to be happy? How much money is enough? And he said, one of the richest men in the world, he said, a little more. Thirdly, restlessness. Just never satisfied, never content. Can't stay in one place too long. Can't make a long-term commitment. Then he says, other seed fell into the good soil. Finally, we're here. And as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100 fold. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the only soil that produced fruit, lasting fruit. So you know this, but I'm going to remind you of it. The sower is Jesus. The sower is Jesus. Now, there is no better sower than Jesus. And when Jesus speaks, he's better than any preacher you've ever heard. We all have our favorite preachers. I have my favorite preachers. You have yours. If you're even watching me, thanks for noticing. But Jesus is the sower. I, I'm not the sower. I'm not the sower. Jesus is the sower. It's his word. The seed is the word of God. The seed is the word of God. And the soil is my heart. So Jesus is a sower, nothing wrong with a sower. The seed is the word of God. There is nothing wrong with the word of God. So the issue here is the condition of the soil. The emphasis is on the soil. Problem's not the sower. The problem's not the seed. The problem is the heart. Now, when I've preached Matthew or this in the past, I, I've always kind of just automatically divided these into four kinds of people. But as I was studying this afresh, I, I realized something. These four soils can be the condition of my heart as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ at any point in my life. In other words, I can find myself in, in one of these heart conditions at any time, depending on how I'm listening and responding to the Word of God. So let's just say, I'm a new believer. I get saved. I mean, you know, you open the Bible and, wow, that's incredible. I mean, you start highlighting everything. I, I remember when I got saved and, and, and uh, I got a living Bible because I couldn't understand the King James. And, and I got a living Bible. I mean, it's like, whoa, this is incredible. I mean, Jesus is, is speaking to me. And, and I read that and I read it and I read it and the pages were dirty. But you know what happens to us? After the emotions die down, 
Other things begin to creep in. The devil begins to say, you shouldn't take yourself so seriously. You, you, you shouldn't be that committed. I mean, you're looking weird to people. Vance Havner said, when somebody gets saved and gets excited about Jesus, they basically have to backslide to be in fellowship with most church members. You see, my heart can be in this condition at any time. I could have been a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. I could have been a Sunday school teacher. I could have been a youth worker, a children's worker for decades. But if I am not daily in my devotion and in my commitment to Christ, one day I'll come to church, cross my arms and sit there and say, well, that's the preacher's opinion. I don't care what he says. I'm not doing it. I know, I'm, yeah, I probably ought to go down during that invitation. I'm not going down during that invitation. And the devil snatches the seat away. Or, which I've seen happen far too much, we're in church, man. We're raising our kids in church. We're in preschool and children and youth. We're raising our kids in church. And they go off to college and you buy a camper or a boat or, or, or a cabin on the lake and you're gone every other weekend because now I'm finally free from having to be around. Raised my kids, did my job, reported for duty. Now it's my life. You see, you could have been faithful for 20 years and in a matter of weeks or months lose everything that you've done because something chokes out the Word of God in your heart. We all know times in our lives. I know times in my life, if you're not being honest, please be honest. I know times in my life when I just resist what God wants me to do. And that reveals the condition of the soil of my heart in that moment. This is nothing new. Some people attend and are never fully engaged. Some people just can't wait to come, and, and they can't wait to take notes, and they can't wait to do something about what they've just heard. Some people listen intently and grow. Some people don't want to grow. They don't want to hear, and they're there because their wife made them come or their parents made them come. Some listen and follow for a season. There's, there's, there's not much I can't say at this point. I mean, after 30 years here, I've watched people come and be hot for God for a year or two or three, and then one day you wake up and you haven't seen them in a year or two or three. It's not because the church changed. It's not because the Word changed. It's not because Jesus changed. It's because their hearts changed. They became resistant to the Word of God. I found this quote, we've learned that it takes about 5% effort to win a man to Christ and 95% to keep him in Christ and growing into maturity in the church. In other words, it takes just a matter of a few minutes for me to win somebody to faith in Jesus Christ, but then I got to spend 95% of the time making sure he stays in the word, he's staying consistent in his discipline, he's faithful in the church because that's where we slip up and that's where we blow it. And that's where the church loses its witness. Jesus expects his disciples to be teachable. Verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's found in Jeremiah 5:21 and Ezekiel 12 in verse 2 in the book of Isaiah. In all three of those prophets, they are speaking and warning Israel about not listening to the word of God. When you hear it, do something about it. 
I want to make three suggestions about what you need to do with the Word. You need to listen, you need to receive it, and you need to live it out. You need to listen, you need to receive it. Lord, I received that Word from you. I received that. You're speaking to my heart, and now I'm going to live it out. Show me how to live it out when I walk out of this place. Then look at the third thing, the parables and the disciples. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables, and he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. Those who are outside. Everyone who's not a disciple. You see, you can be outside and be a member of a church. You can be outside and be religious, but you're not a disciple. Those outside can't see, they can't understand, they can't discern, they can't perceive. They don't know, listen, here's, here's the best way I know to explain it. They don't know the difference in a planned out prearranged worship service where everything is done by rote and a worship service where the Spirit of God is so thick you could cut it with a knife. They don't see any difference because they're on the outside. That's why people can sit in a worship service and God move and them not be moved because they're on the outside. That's why Billy Graham said oh, 80% of church members in America are lost. Why? They're on the outside. They made a decision. They shook a preacher's hand. They walked into a baptistry. They were confirmed, but they never had a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ where they fell in love with him and fell in love with his word and what he had to say to them. In the days of Noah, they heard, but they rejected the nation rejected prophet after prophet. Israel's religious, religious leaders rejected Jesus. Even when the conversion of Paul came, they got angry. He couldn't stay in a synagogue long when he was traveling because they'd kick him out. Well, here's the Jew of Jews, the Pharisee of Pharisees. He comes to grace, meets Jesus and changes, and they go, that can't be real. That's not right. People today have multiple opportunities to hear, but they're not interested. Verses 13 through 20, the word is used eight times. When you see the word, it's talking about Jesus teaching and preaching, the apostles preaching, and he tells us some will follow and some will reject. Jesus never spoke in parables to confuse his disciples. He's along with them now, and he's teaching them the mystery of the kingdom. That, that word mystery is used over 20 times in the Gospels. It's not weird. It's not strange. It's not like a mystery theater or anything like that. Here's what a mystery is. It is a truth that was previously hidden but now revealed to God's people. A truth that was previously hidden but now revealed to God people, God's people. So what's the mystery here? Let me just sum it up in a sentence. The kingdom of God would be an age of sowing seed to the nations. The kingdom of God 
would be an age, the church age, the age in which we live right now, would be an age birthed at the ascension and at Pentecost. It would be an age of sowing seed. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. We've been entrusted with sacred things that the natural man can't figure out. In 2 Thessalonians, he talks about the mystery of lawlessness, that evil persists and grows. By the way, evil builds on top of evil. Evil doesn't start at the base. It just keeps building. Evil becomes more evil. And then he talks about the mystery of godliness, the opposite of lawlessness, how God empowers the godly to live the life of Christ. God's word is the seed that grows to reveal to us how he works in this world. So here's number four, the point to be made. In verses 21 through 34, and we're going to hit these kind of like bullet points because they're really like bullet point sermons. And he was saying to them, a lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it, or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on a lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. See, the only place for a lamp is where it illuminates. The kingdom of God is to be on display. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. The, the word of God is a lamp. It's not to be hidden. It's to be on so that we can see by it. This light has to leave the church and go to the city. Jesus wants the light in the darkest parts of this world. That's why we are called to first of all minister in our Jerusalem. In the darkest, hardest parts of our community, we need to be the light. The seed speaks of life. The lamp speaks of light. And the word is both. The word is life and it's light. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you and more will be given to you beside. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Let's just look at this simply. The more you study the word, the more you get out of it. The more you put into worship, the more you get out of it. You see, I, Jesus went to a church, a synagogue, that didn't even recognize that he was the Son of God, but he went and he worshiped the Father. It puzzles me when anybody says, I just don't get anything out of church. Well, you haven't put anything into it. If you're not getting anything out of it, it's because you're not putting anything. If you're waiting to be entertained, then go to a nightclub. The church is not for entertainment. The church is for edification. The church is for exhortation. The church is to put us in a position where we gather and worship the Lord and honor his word together. I love what John Phillips says. He says, there is a word of caution He's talking about these verses, verse 24 and 25. There's a word of caution. There's a word of counsel. 
And there is a word of clarification. You see, you don't use it, you lose it. Verse 26. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows. How he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. The seed growing secretly is a picture of the patience of a farmer. I mean, a farmer doesn't go out every day and dig to where he put the seed in. I don't, I don't see anything yet. He waits until he sees the blade, then the head, then the mature grain. What is Jesus telling us here? He is telling us and telling his disciples, we will not see it all until the end. We leave the results of sowing the seed of the word of God to him. We witness, we share, we invest in the kingdom. The parable, this parable is found in Mark's gospel, and it, and it fits only in Mark's gospel, this particular one. It fits the servant king's story. And Jesus is speaking to his servants. And what's he saying? We sow the word. We must sow the word. Not our ideas, not our opinions, not our philosophies. We sow the word. God can speak for himself. Secondly, we must wait for the seed to take root. Not everybody's going to be saved the first time somebody talks to them. Some people are. Some people, it's multiple conversations. It's years. We must wait for the seed to take root. You don't know what God is doing in somebody's heart. That's why this third point, we must ask God for a harvest. God, I've sown the seed. I'm waiting for it to take root. But would you bring a harvest? Would you bring that person to saving knowledge in Jesus Christ? Would you bring that truth to fulfillment in my life and in my heart? You see, God's not going to do for us for what, what we can do for ourselves. I mean, we work a field of souls. God produces the harvest, but he calls on us to spread the seed. Verse 30, and he said, and he said how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. This parable of the mustard seed is also found in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel. The mustard seed was the smallest common seed used in Palestine. And although it was small, it would produce great growth. It's also an illustration later on in Mark's gospel about mountain-moving faith. Here's what Jesus is saying to us. Faith that is not acted upon will not grow. You don't have to have big faith. You can have faith the size of a mustard seed. I mean, that's small. 
is not the size of your faith. It's where you put your faith. When I trust God in little things, he shows me how to trust him in big things. What God began with mustard seeds, a handful of disciples, has become billions of followers in the world today. And throughout the last 2,000 years, what started with a handful of seeds that wouldn't even fill up a thimble has now exploded around the world and in nations all over the world. Then finally he says, with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. I mean, these guys had to be like me and like you are right now. I'm in brain overload. I wish you had stopped halfway through this message. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. So let's wrap this up with some real quick points. We're now in chapter 4. Jesus is drawing the line. He's separating his disciples out. The Pharisees and the scribes are after him. They don't want him to be around. So there's a couple of things here. They, they were looking for a political messiah. So point number one, Jesus didn't come to be a political leader. He came to be a servant. Jesus didn't come to fix politics. He came to serve man. He said, if you want to be the greatest, be a servant. He didn't come to please people. He came to reveal truth. In light of that, my responsibility is to listen and learn and act on what he says. The growth of the church is not my responsibility. The growth of the kingdom is under God's control. We sow the seeds. He's the Lord of the harvest. William Cowper said, The Spirit breathes upon the word and brings the truth to sight. Precepts and promises afford a sanctifying light. So here's the closing question. Are you listening? And what are you going to do about what you just heard? What's the condition of the soil of your heart today? Father, I pray for those who have listened today, and I pray that if they do not know Jesus, that the seed would find good soil to take root and that they would invite you into their lives, that they would ask you to save them from their sin and that they would bear fruit, much fruit, as they become more and more like Jesus. I pray for all of us, Father, that we would examine, and examine our hearts where we are right now in our walk with you. Are we shallow, rocky, or is our soil deep? And can you grow something great in our hearts? Help us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.